Hi, everyone. I'm Miss USA 1994, Lou Parker, and you're listening to Life After the Crown with Kim Tialdo. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Life After the Crown podcast, where each episode I bring you useful interviews with former pageant contestants, title holders, and women of influence who are now succeeding across many different industries in the real world. My name is Tim Tialdo, lifestyle entrepreneur, pageant host, author, and quite honestly, somebody who just wants to help you become a better person overall. Now, if pageant life is over for you, or it soon could be, and you're wondering, well, what do I do now? Or what's next? This podcast is designed to help make the transition to real life and the school of hard knocks a little bit easier for you to handle. So if this is your first time listening, thanks for tuning in. We're glad you're with us today. Let's get started. The first runner-up is Miss Virginia Pepsalco. That means Lou Parker of South Carolina is the new Miss USA. That's the voice of host Bob Goen announcing Lou Parker is Miss USA 1994. Since winning the crown, Lou has worked in the television news business as an anchor and reporter for more than two decades. She's interviewed everybody from George H.W. Bush to Will Smith and has won four Emmys for her work. She is also the author of the book Catching the Crown, which covers everything from pageant preparation to the big night of competition. She also founded the lifestyle media brand Be Kind & Co., which focuses on kindness through acts, community events, health and fitness, animal welfare, food and beverage, travel, and so much more. And finally, perhaps her biggest passion is as an animal advocate. She has also been honored with two Genesis Awards from the Humane Society of the United States for her outstanding reporting and creative portrayals of animal protection issues, including investigations into puppy mills, elephant abuse, and beagle lab testing. Lou Parker, I think that bio just scrapes the surface of all that you have going on in your career. You're quite an inspiration <laughs> to many. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks, Tim. I'm so glad that you want to interview me. It makes me very happy. Well, hey, I mean, you definitely deserve it. You're legendary. Come on, let's be honest. Oh, you're funny. We're uh, funny to think back how long it's been since I was competing in pageants. You know, we always laugh and I, someone will be like, oh, you were Miss USA? And I'll say yes. And I'll be like, it was 150 <laughs> years ago. And we, I don't say 100, I say 150, and we always laugh. Well, we're we're going to say almost <laughs> yeah, we're going to say almost 25. So you are the as, yep. we, as we talked about a little bit before, you are the last contestant from South Carolina to have won the uh, Miss National Crown. So I, I guess going back, as you take a look back into the early 90s, there when you started competing, what led you to want to compete in pageants at that time? Oh, uh, well, so it it really goes back to. When I was in high school, I, I was a I was really into sports. To be honest, I'm kind of a tomboy and um, was playing softball and running track and basketball. But I went to a really small school in South Carolina, and small towns are all about pageants, right? Too. Oh yeah. And so we had our high school pageant, and I'm sure there were probably ten of us in the pageant. <laughs> about <laughs> all, but mom and I decided that we should I should be in it and. Um, I was, and luckily I won it and I got a taste of it at that point. And so, um, I went on at that point to get into the South Carolina system with Paula Miles, uh, with South Carolina teen. And I competed in that when I was 15 and 16. So when I was 15, uh, I got first runner up and I believe if my memory is correct, I believe I got first runner up to Gina Tollison. Yes. Uh, who went on to get first runner up in Miss USA, but then won Miss World. And mm -hmm. then we became friends 
once we all moved to LA years later. So that was a lot of fun. Um, but then my, when I was 16, I decided to be in it again. And we laugh and say, my mom dyed my hair. I'm brunette. And my mom dyed my hair like with some really bad blonde highlights. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I had some really big hair too, but I think I just sort of disappeared in that pageant in some capacity. And, and for whatever reason, I, I don't know, I just kind of stopped competing in the pageants at that point. I just probably got focused on basketball or track or whatever I was doing in school. And every year, Paula, you know, back then, uh, for the millennials listening today, we did not have internet or cell phones back then. <laughs> at all. <laughs> at all. So we basically, each year, I was on a list, obviously, because Paula is, a, you know, pageant directors have a list of people who have competed. She would send me a letter every year, and typically I would not open the letters uh, over the years, and just because I was focused on college and graduate school, I became a high school teacher after that, and year after year after year, but one year in 93, it was, um, I don't know, spring of 93, I got a letter in the mail. I was teaching high school at the time, and I was really young, like 23. And I got a letter in the mail that said, and I, and I saw that it was from Paula and the state pageant. And I usually just would dismiss it because I thought that was over. And for whatever reason, as life has it, I opened that envelope. And maybe it was the place I was in at the time. I opened it and it said, you could be the next Miss USA to cash in prizes and, you know, move to L.A. and blah, blah, blah. And I thought for a second, I was like, maybe, maybe when I'm, Maybe I should try this. And I don't know. Don't try it. You know. And then I was like, well, I don't want to regret saying I could have maybe tried to do that, right? So I called my mom, and mom was super supportive about it. And you know, I didn't think I had. I didn't have a lot of money. I was teaching school, and I had student loans, and I was worried about buying dresses and what it, what everything that entailed. You know, back then I wasn't sure what that meant. But I had the support from my mom, and just made a commitment, and got in really great shape, and found this fabulous gay guy who was like amazing Ernie Whiten <laughs> at the local hair shop. Um, I went to get my hair colored. This is a funny story. I actually went to get my hair not colored, um, cut or do something that with this lady who um, was really a big presence in my life. And I guess this guy, Ernie had heard that I was being in a, I was going to be in a pageant and he was all excited. So he came over and he was like, tell me all about it. Let me see your resume and let me see your application. And I brought the application in to him, and I had handwritten the application. And, girl, you need to type this. And, again, no computers. <laughs> I needed to type it on a typewriter, but I had handwritten it. So he sort of became my unofficial uh, pageant coach, and we became fast friends. And I credit a lot of my uh, winnings to him because he helped me focus on what I, how I wanted to present myself physically, the, the look I wanted to go with, and just get really getting ready for interview. And then I won the South Carolina, and you know, literally, I think it was like six weeks later, I won USA, and they moved me straight out to LA, and like my life changed. 360 degrees. Well, you're you're out there still in L.A., so do you think that if you had not won Miss USA in 1994, do you think you would have ever moved to L.A.? So we, I think about that fairly often because, you know, it's interesting things that happen in our lives or the choices that we make in our lives, or if I say I would have gotten first runner-up, right, mm -hmm. I would have gone back to Charleston. So I don't know what that would have looked like. I think I always knew that I had, I was supposed to be doing something I, I'm not sure what that was. It was like this gut thing in me, just like the same thing that got me to start Be Kind and Co. 
and I had to trust my gut on it. So I don't know if I would have maybe settled down in Charleston or if I would have ended up in Atlanta. I would probably not have thought to move to LA because I had never been to LA and I didn't know what that looked like or what that felt like. But I do know that once I moved out here, I fell in love with the state and the city and the people. And and even though I had to leave for a while in my business, my television business now to basically come back here full circle, I, I don't think I would have ended up here. There would have been no reason you know, but who knows? I mean, I don't know who, what the plan was, you know? Well, thank God <laughs> for Miss USA, plan. right? Yep. So uh, I did go back this morning and I went and watched the video from the 1994 Miss USA. And I was watching when they were just uh, calling out the finalists. And as you were called, the, commenta- the commentator said, you know, we interviewed her before the pageant and she said that to win, you have to come to the pageant with it already in your mind that you are the winner. So when you got yeah. off the plane that year in South Padre Island, Texas, did you truly, honestly think that you were going to win? You know, people ask Olympians and different people uh, a similar question because, you know, it, it is a lot of my, it's a, a lot of your mindset, right? And I didn't think that way initially. Um, Ernie, the, the, my unofficial coach, basically said when I was training for the pageant, he said, every day you walk out of that, out of your apartment door, you have to think of yourself as Miss USA. You're not Miss South Carolina USA. You are Miss USA. And so... For three months when I was training and preparing, I'm a really good student. I love to have great instructors and teachers and stuff, and I love I love being a good student. Mm-hmm. If you tell me what I need to do, I'll get it done, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> so I did walk out of the house every day with the mentality of I am Miss USA, not like walking around like with the crown on my head, like I'm Miss <laughs> USA, but just sort of, you know, thinking this is the space. You know, almost like how I've learned now is to put things out into the universe. You know, tell the universe what you want or what you're dreaming of and, and, and visualize it. And so I think at a young age, I, I had learned at that point to visualize what I wanted. Once I got to the pageant to compete, you know, it, yes, I, you know, in my heart was trying to stay focused as this is, you know, keep your, your mind on wh- why you're here. But at the same time, we're human, right? So you look around, there are a lot of pretty girls and a lot of um, accomplished girls and a lot of really cool, fun girls. And so I didn't know. I just know that I stayed focused the entire two weeks. I didn't look at it as a party or an opportunity to make new friends. I made new friends. I actually um, made a couple of really great friends. Uh, But I did stay focused on my index cards and the questions and my thoughts on current events. And I read the newspaper and that's that every day instead of (laughs) of the Internet. (laughs) We didn't have Internet. But I read the newspaper every day to stay current. So in case a judge brought up some kind of current event or anything. One thing I do, though, remember, Tim, is that when I tell this story pretty often, which I find really surprising that maybe I was even able to do this at, at a young age or maybe I just was in such a focused mind, um, we had already been chosen as top 15, I think it was 15 back then. Then we did swimsuit, and I felt confident about swimsuit, um, but it wasn't, you know, my strongest. I I, I never thought swimsuit was my strongest. I always thought interview was my strongest, but now it was time for evening gown. And I loved the song and, you know, having the military guys out there. And I was standing behind the curtain, and I remember standing there in my gown, and, you know, they had probably six girls in front of me and the music was so beautiful. And I, I knew I was next and the other girl was wrapping up, coming up the runway. And I remember thinking 
in my heart and in my head, just make it easy for them. Show them that you're the one. Just make it easy. You know, it's, it's that simple. Just go out and show them. Like, they want it to be easy, you know, and just go out with exuding, you know, kindness and grace and happiness and beauty and, and just, that's all you have to do. Don't be nervous. And I talk to myself in that way, which I think is a great lesson down the road, you know, that to learn to, and for everyone to to speak highly to yourself or confidently to yourself as opposed to beating yourself up. And I turned that corner and I it was surreal. It felt so amazing when I stepped out on the stage. And it that's at that point is when I felt I'm supposed to be in this moment at this time right now. It just felt like I was floating on the stage. Now, does that mean I thought I was going to win? No, because then I got to get the top three, and then I got to answer that dang question, and then I got to have a decent answer, and then, you know, and then I got to go through all the numbers. But I did feel, if I did feel confident during interview at that point. And I don't know if confident is the right word. I think just in the, I felt like I was supposed to be there in that moment. Well, I love the mindset and I love the approach, and I think it, that's a really good uh, bit of advice for a lot of the girls competing today. Now, there's another thing I wanted to mm-hmm. ask you because there are a ton of young women these days that completely and solely compete for the purpose of feeling like, you know, I am enough. And the crown or the mm-hmm. feeling of competing for that crown gives them that sense of validation. So from mm-hmm. your standpoint, what did the pageant experience do for your self-esteem or, or maybe your sense of worth at that point? funny that you say I am enough because that's my mantra that I say a lot to myself. I would say to the girls, first off, I'll talk about myself in a second about that, but I'll say to the girls, anyone who's competing is that you're enough before you compete. You're enough just being you and your skin, you know, and who you are. Being in a pageant is great and having a crown and winning a sash is, you know, icing to the cake, but you already are enough. Um, because you can't take all that stuff with you and it's not going to make you, it's not going to necessarily make other people like you more or you like yourself more until you know that you're enough and you truly believe that nothing that you put on your body, a crown, a sash, a title, anything's going to change that. So from an older lady to a young, younger gal, pageant girls or not, I think that is definitely something I've learned over the years. But for me, I don't know exactly if the pageant, I think the, I, first of all, I love people and I love competition. I'm very competitive. I love sports and I love to talk and I, I just, and I like being in front of people to share. And I think that's what the pageant brought me. I think by winning, um, it didn't necessarily make me feel enough because I, you know, I, I think I'll struggle with being enough until my last breath. I think we all do. But being in the pageant, I think, afforded me the ability to go out and change, not change, affect hopefully one, two, three, you know, hundreds of people's lives just by saying one thing, shaking their hand, being able to have a conversation with them, uh, taking a picture with them, Whatever it is that they needed, I think um, if I was able to give that to them by having the title and the crown, I think that's a beautiful thing. And, and I, it's what I said in universe um, when I was on the stage in top six. I had not thought of the question when they asked me. I thought of every other question. But they asked me, what is your mission in life? And 
I had honestly not thought about that. And I basically said, I'm an educator or, you know, a teacher, because I was at the time. And if I can help one person along their path, then, then my life has been worth it. And that was not a canned question. I mean, a canned answer. That came from my soul, you know. So I think I've always felt that way. And I think that's where it's all transitioned into this whole Be Kind and Co thing, too. Is I, I've always wanted to help to a default sometimes. Yeah. But in a positive way, I think the pageants just allowed me to go out and build confidence and say, I can talk to a crowd of 5,000 people or I can talk to a crowd of, you know, three intimate teenagers in a room. I, I love it. Well, so what I'm hearing... And, and this really mirrors what I've heard from other uh, national title holders as well, is the pageant and the crown really didn't change you, but I guess it more amplified or magnified who you are already were. Does that sound about right? I, yes. And I think it also, by winning it, it, it basically said, yes, it said basically, again, you're right. There is, I am enough to be able to step out and go out and, and share whatever it is you want to share. Some of the girls want to share fitness. Some want to share wisdom some want to share something about a nonprofit or their passion and and i do i think i just uh, allow for you to be able to even if you don't win i think just being in them and being able to go up there and say your name and say what city you're from and then have a conversation with you know eight strangers or six strangers that are the judges and be confident in that it's only going to make you better down the road. Sure. Now, you have stayed involved in the pageant industry in some respects over the years. Uh, just a couple of years back here, you and I actually met at Miss Teen USA out at the Venetian there in Las yeah. Vegas when you were judging the Miss Teen <laughs> USA pageant. Now, that particular pageant, it got a lot of press for you know reasons that are you know well beyond what you were doing. You know, of course, the winner was accused of racism on Twitter, and then you know, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, people were you know ridiculing the judging panel for picking five blondes in the top five. Uh, and I thought you guys did a great job. You know, I was there. And uh, can you talk about kind of what it's like in this day and age to be a judge for one of these national pageants that are televised or even, you know, put on the Internet? Yeah, that was an interesting that was an interesting outcome that happened. But like I was telling a friend of mine the other day, they were asking me about pageants and I can't remember how it came up and they and about judging or something. And they were like, yeah, but they're they're pretty much, you know, they don't know anything about pageants, but they were like, but they're, the judging's pretty much rigged, right? So they basically say, they kind of figure out, like, who the five are, and they say, and I was like, what? And they were like, but no, they split, like, politically, or depending on what state they're from, like, what look they want, and I was like, no. I was like, you have no idea, like, it is a lottery. <laughs> it's like, I mean, you go up and you do your best, but numbers are punched, and numbers are written down, punched into a machine, or written down on a piece of paper, and depending on who those judges are and their personal likes, their personal preferences, um, it all just comes together and whatever, whoever gets the highest number is who wins. You know, it's, it's pretty simple. There's no like, oh, let's manipulate this or manipulate that, right? So by judging, for me, I sometimes realize how in the heck did I win when I'm judging? Because I think <laughs> it, it really is a lottery. Like, I mean, because if you're you and I are judging next to each other and say like two other people are judging right so we've got a panel of four mm-hmm. you may have a preference for blondes I may have a preference I like a brunette look or my other friend may like you know um, an Asian look or whatever you just never know like so all that goes into to the judging and then depending on personality and what they say and w- what your dress looks like it all I mean it, it sometimes I feel like it's just fake that somebody comes and it's their night, you know, like they yeah. might not shine in, in rehearsal, 
But then that night, for some reason, they just, it was their night, you know, it was their moment and they were supposed to be there. So when I go in to judge, you know, and, and I, every time they always say, you know, this is what we're looking for. And this is, you know, like, this is, it's a beautiful, like, just fine. You'll know when you see her, you know, there'll be a lot of them, but you'll figure it out. Everyone figures it out. You know, when I go in, I just think, you know, I'm, I'm going to go in and look at, if I'm judging a state pageant, I look at it as, can this girl be Miss USA, right? If you're judging a national pageant, can this girl be whatever the national pageant is? Or if you're judging a county pageant, can this girl be the state girl? Mm-hmm. And if you really look at look at it that way, I think it, because um, all the girls are great. I mean, they're all, and it's hard because everyone's excited to be there and they're all putting in 100%. So but there's always just like a few girls that stand out just a little bit more via the interview or um, their poise on camera or whatever it may be. Um, but I just try to really stick to, can she go to the next level? Because ultimately the pageant system wants her to go to the next level, but she wants to go to the next level too. Right. So that's kind of, that's sort of how I look at it. And I would say I'm, I'm not a high low judger either. I'm more of like in the middle like, I don't go extreme low and extreme high. Yeah. I sort of keep it, you know, some people do, you know, zero or 10, you know. <laughs> I usually do, like, <laughs> between, like, five, five and nine, five, depending well, on what the numbers that we're supposed to be doing. And I'll tell you, one of the biggest questions I get all the time, you know, I, I do, I've done state judging. I've never done national judging like you. But, you know, they always ask, what are you looking for? Now, from an attribute standpoint, I always say my number one is confidence. What is it for you? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you mean like on stage or in person? Uh, well, I think a little bit of both. I mean, that sometimes, yeah. you know, as you mentioned, there's, you know, I think Kristen Dalton and Shandy Finnessy call it the sparkle effect, that it factor, whatever you want to call it. But usually there's something, yeah. you know, in your repertoire of kind of what you're looking for, that this is the number one thing for you. And then, you know, there's two, three and four. Yeah. Um, I would say confidence, but there's a fine line of confidence, wouldn't you say? Like, you know, you yeah, don't want between someone to confidence be, and arrogance, yes. Uh, right, where in sort of where it's almost too, where they're trying too hard. Yeah, very much. You know, so. I don't know if it's just my inner. I I feel like I it's going to sound total gypsy, but I feel like I can read people's energies a little bit. Like just when someone's in my presence, you know, and they're. I just know I can sometimes feel unless they're nervous or something that they're genuine. You know, like when it comes to interview. When it's on stage, it's similar. I guess it, they would describe that pretty well, like the sparkle effect. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, it's sort of like an aura around them, you know, where they sort of glow. It's that glow, sparkle, confidence mixed with grace. I think, I think it has to be a mix between confidence where, yes, I'm here, look at me, but I'm also graceful and classy and, and regal, but I'm also, I can also get down and paint with children at the hospital and play with kids out on the playground or work with the homeless or, you know, whatever. It's like, it has to, you have to really feel that from all of that from a woman. Yeah. And that, you know, that says a lot. Well, and you certainly bring credibility, you know, to being a judge because you actually wrote a book for the pageant industry called Catching the Crown, uh, the source for pageant competition. Um, and for those of you listening, if you want to get it, it is, it is available on Amazon. Now, I did read a little bit about it. I've actually never read the book itself, but the topics include um, advice on hair, skin care, makeup, uh, physical prep, and, you know, what to expect during competition. But what's fun is that you go a step further. So you talk about traveling, dealing with the press, packing, fan mail. <laughs> and even boyfriends. 
So, you know, I guess what prompted you to write the book and really get into those deep issues? Well, what prompted me to write the book is, first of all, I love to write. Um, but I had I was living in L.A. after the pageant, and pageantry magazine called and just asked if I could do an article for them, basically, like, top ten tips that you would have um, for a girl competing in a pageant. And, you know, naive me, I was like, why would they ask me that? Like, you know, why would they have me write? And then I'm like, duh. You know, and someone's like, hello, honey, you were Miss USA. <laughs> like, nice. Oh, okay. So which made me sit down and start writing. Like, okay, what are those? What If I did have to tell someone top 10 tips, what would those look like? And so I started writing and writing and writing and writing. It turned in, eventually it turned into a book. It was never an intention to write a book, but that article, all of a sudden it was page after page after page. And I wrote the book a really long time ago, and then I republished it um, and, and, you know, updated it a little bit because I wrote it so many years ago. So some of the stuff is a little outdated and, and basic. But what I find about what I think is important with my book is that, you know, I, I really truly believe that interview, you can look great on stage and present well on stage. Most girls are like, have gotten fit, they have a pretty dress, they look good, and, you know, but I think interview is so key, and it's something I really, truly believe that the girls have to focus on. And so I talk about that a lot in my book, and I talk about the importance of meeting the judges as if you were meeting them at a party or a an event or church or with your parents or, you know, depending on your age, meeting that person and saying hi and having a conversation as opposed to waiting for the question. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, being interviewed, Instead basically. Being interviewed. It's not an, it sh- it's called interview, but it shouldn't, it shouldn't be an interview. It should be a conversation. And so I talk about that, and I, I think that really helped me in the pageant um, because I, I had conversations with them as opposed to answering, okay, what do you got next for me? Okay, I answer that. Okay, what's <laughs> next? And then, oh, my God, it's the four minutes over, or whatever, you know, whatever the, the situation is, um, even with panels. You know, then once I got done with like competition aspect, I was like, well, there's a lot of stuff that comes afterwards. You know, you've got to realize now you're a role model in the community and what that looks like. You know, how how do you relate to fans and how do you respond to fans and how how and boyfriends? I mean, that's a big deal. Like when someone wins, and you've got a boyfriend, like how do you deal with that? You may have to be traveling a lot or you may have to move to a different city or how to ease that with them. And I also wrote about my memoirs and, you know, traveling around and all the great places that I got to go and the people I got to meet. And so it's more of a memoir with those tips on interview. And um, one of those things that inspired me too is um, when I was, I had just won Miss USA and I was, I just gotten to LA. I think I'd only been there two weeks. The Miss USA 1976, and I'm totally brain cramping on her name right now. We might have to look it up. She also wrote a book. And I think she's like the only other person who wrote kind of like a how-to book. And she sent it to me and basically said, welcome to the sisterhood, you know, enjoy every minute. And I thought that was so amazing. And so I send my book each year to the winners and say, welcome to the sisterhood. That's really Similar cool. kind of passage. Yeah, even though it's, you know, kind of outdated. But, you know, it's, you forget, or I did, not you. I forgot that, I, or I never really even thought about that until I was, it was like backstage at, when I was giving up the crown. And I think Carl Dunn from Pageantry Magazine, and he was like, so 
honey, are you excited about, you know, giving up the crown or, or are you like wanting to hold on to it tight? And I was like, um, well, I actually kind of feel both. I sort of am ready. I'm, while I'm grateful that I had all this, I'm actually sort of ready to look forward to like what's next. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know if I want to give it up because once I give it up, it's like, you know, we would tease, we'd say, you know, you're arriving the limo and then you're leaving the cab, you know? And, um, and then he said, he was like, honey, you don't have to worry about that. Once you're in Miss USA, you're always in Miss USA. And I just thought, I've never forgotten that. And I've tried to remember that um, all throughout my life as well, um, as, as the other girls come along to welcome them to the sisterhood. Because, you know, it started in 52, and so there are only a select number of us, you know, that have been um, lucky enough to have held that title. Mm-hmm. And I think it's um, it's interesting to be able to meet other Miss USA's or email with them or follow them on Instagram because even though we may not know one another, we do know one another, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because we have this unspeakable bond that like, our unbreakable bond that like we'll always have no matter what. Well, I love that line. I think we should use that as the tagline for Miss USA. Arrive in a limo, leave in a cab. <laughs> <laughs> well, now these days it's arrive in a limo, leave an Uber. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. <laughs> Well, so that's uh, you know, a lot about your pageant background, and you, you know you've, we've covered a lot. But you know now we get to get into this illustrious career that you have, and I, you know, let's mm-hmm. talk about the one thing that you're known for probably best right now. That that is that you're an anchor and reporter on KTLA uh, five in Los Angeles. Of course, this is the uh, second biggest media market in the country. I know you've probably had to work your way up to get there. Talk about your your, your TV career path. I know you said you had to leave LA for a little bit to kind of work your way up through the markets and to get back. Just kind of talk about that path and what it's been like. Well, it's been amazing. Uh, I, I was working out. So I won Miss USA and I traveled for a year. And back then they housed you in Los Angeles. Now, once Donald Trump bought it in 97, mm-hmm. um, they send all the girls to New York but back then we would come to LA so I moved to the big city and I was like you know big eyes and excited and lived here for a year and then once the crown I gave the crown up I stayed an additional year and I didn't really know what I wanted to do because I was a former teacher but I didn't really have a California teacher's license and people wanted me to do acting or they were like you can model or you can do different stuff and I'm not a good actress I do not try on command. So, um, but I knew that I, I, I have to be honest. I felt once a camera was on me, I felt very comfortable speaking to the camera. So I had to look at that, not as an actress, but something felt right as speaking in front of the camera. It, it never made me nervous. So randomly, my agent at the time said, Hey, the Charleston, South Carolina CBS station is looking for an education reporter. Uh, position. Uh, would you be interested in going back? And I was like, no, I want to stay in LA. <laughs> you know, no, I don't want to go back. And what? And I don't, I don't know how to report. I mean, what, what does that even mean? And they're like, well, they want to talk to you about maybe coming back and doing positive stories about education because you're a former teacher. You're from Charleston. They had followed you to Miss USA and Miss Universe, and so like they were basically bringing me back as a name, right? Yeah. So I went and I met with them and told them no like twice because I was like, di- I really didn't want to leave L.A. because I loved L.A. But then I realized I'm going back to Charleston that I lo- where I love and I'll be on TV. And worst case, you know, I don't like it or whatever. I can always go back to Charleston. I mean, go back to L.A. So I packed up all my bags and went to Charleston and worked for WCSC, which was amazing. I was really, 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 really bad. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I was going to ask you, you know, you obviously, you didn't study broadcasting. That wasn't going to be what you no, wanted to do. No, I did not study broadcasting. What was it like to try and be a journalist major. without it any type of background? painful. Well, you know, at first I just basically did track, and uh, which means like I would just voice over things and I wouldn't be live on camera. But eventually they started letting me go you know, to cover the school board meetings, and then I would have to go live outside. And, and I would memorize it, Tim. I would be, you know, I knew what I was going to have to say. You know, Debbie and Debbie and Bill, today, the whatever it was, and I would memorize it, which is the biggest mistake, because if you <laughs> dump, if you're nervous and you've memorized and you stumble, then you're hosed. Yeah, like, there's no going that. back, right? Yep. So number one lesson in journalism is don't memorize it. Just say what you know, like kind of summarize what's going on, kind of know what you're going to say, but don't memorize. So it was so funny because many times I would do the live shot, mess it up or stumble or whatever. And then I'd immediately call one of my best friends and I'd be like, oh, I hate myself. That was so bad. And they, were, they always said, it, I'm, it wasn't as bad as you it probably felt like. <laughs> and then it was. I look back on those videos and, oh, it was painful. But, you know, it's like anything. You know, you learn something at a new job. If you're an accountant or if you're a baseball player or whatever it is, you're just not on TV for everybody else to see your mistakes, you know. But eventually I got better and um, I started filling in for the noon uh, anchor when she was out sick and, is the first time I did that, I thought my heart was, I thought that everyone on the TV could hear my heart, like, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> I was so yep. nervous, but I made a take and then got a job in South, I mean, in uh, San Antonio, Texas. And so I moved to San Antonio, Texas on my 30th birthday. And I moved out there. I didn't know anyone except the person who had hired me. And I moved there and had a fabulous time. I worked at Fox, uh, the Fox affiliate local station there for, about six years and then I was trying to get out to LA and fortunately you know um, the CBS station there called and wanted to create a morning show like an entertainment fun like hosty morning show and I was like that sounds so awesome but yeah. thank you but I'm I want to go to LA <laughs> they're like <laughs> thanks for no well thanks. I'm offering you I'm offering you this show and you can be the host and and I was like thank you, but I really want to go to LA, you know? So we went back and forth and we laugh about it now because, you know, he finally said, okay, fine. I'll give you an out. Meaning like if LA calls, if some market in LA or station calls, I'll let you out, you know? So I did that show, which I love doing. It was an entertainment show. Um, I was the host and he had a really small staff and no prompter. It was a lot of um, ad lib. And I think I learned to ad lib there. I, I learned to be super comfortable on camera and interview people. And it's definitely what I was supposed to do. And then KTLA called um, in like early 2005. And I got a job as the weekend anchor and general assignment reporter at KTLA. And I moved and I I haven't left and I'm still working with them. They're, it's a great company. It's changed hands several times, but I have an amazing group of um, managers and I really, really love what I do, Tim. Like it's when I'm on the desk anchoring, I, I feel so at home up there. It's just, it's like, it's almost as if I'm with friends and cause I have a lot of friends that work there and, and we, while we have to tell really bad stories sometimes and we have to get into super serious stuff, you know, the majority of the time I'm just there telling stories and sharing good and bad, but it, 
definitely what I was supposed to be doing, I think, um, because it feels right. Like 99% of the time I want to go to work. I definitely need mental days sometimes and I definitely need a vacation sometimes and I have to get away from news and, you know, I don't want to have to work every day, but I really love what I do. And that's something I share with young people too, is that don't do what your parents want you to do. Find something that turns you on every single day that when you get up, you want to write or you want to, whatever it is, you want to go work in TV or if you want to be a doctor or if you want to be an artist or a musician or whatever it is, because it is the worst. I can't imagine having to go to work Monday through Friday or Tuesday through Sunday or whatever it is and not at least liking what you're doing because it's life's too short. And never, and I also tell people, even if you're in your 40s or your 30s or, heaven forbid, your 50s, you can always figure out a way to change, like change that career. Like you don't have to stay in something that doesn't make you happy. Well, and I love, I love how you graduated through your career. I mean, you know, back then, which is, you know, how I did it as well. I mean, you graduated through the markets, you kind of earned your keep, and then you worked your way up to the bigger markets. Now, I was in 165, mm-hmm. then I worked my way up to 82, and then I got up to market 19, which was St. Louis. You're in the number two market. In the country, yeah, and, and there's a great. lot of attention on L.A. What is it like to work in really one of the top two biggest markets in the country and just, you know, cover all that's going on there? You know, it is never ending. I, I always say that we're, we are definitely on a treadmill that does not turn off. You know, it's like you jump on the treadmill and you just hold on for dear life, especially with news, because um, especially with my newscast, uh, we, we cover international, national and local. And so international is always you know, things are happening. And then nationally, of course, everything politically and then, um, you know, shootings and fires and everything. But then you come down to local and we've got car chases and our own fires and just bad stuff that's happening. But KTLA is really great about bringing positive stories to the forefront as well. We do a lot of stuff in the community and we tell, we try to tell, yeah, it's so needed. It's so it's such a balance. And they've been great with me, allowing me to, you know, tell stories that I'm passionate about, about people who are making change or um, people who have come from nothing that have, like, changed someone else's life or made something of themselves or animal issues. Like, they've been really great with me saying, do, do what you need to do. I think they trust me um, that I'm going to tell a story that's not right or left, that's just you know, a good story that's, that has a message or that more importantly helps someone. Um, and so working in LA is, I forget sometimes how large of a market it is. You know, I don't, I think you just sort of, or I just sort of like it so much and love it so much. And back to the confidence thing, um, that you were talking about with the pageants is that I feel so confident with what I do that I don't, I don't think, oh, goodness, I'm getting ready to go on TV in the number two market in the country. A lot of people are watching right now. If you start thinking that, then you can just make a mess of yourself, you know, because then you're like, oh, no, my hair doesn't look great today. My makeup, I'm tired from the weekend. Like, I've got puffy eyes. Like, all that can come into play, you know, or I hate this dress or I feel fat or, you know. (laughs) You, You name it. You know, it's the important things. It's how you look, right? Yeah. So I, I, my hair was always bad, so I just shaved it off. <laughs> right. Exactly. Maybe I should do that. Yeah. No, I don't think that's probably a good idea. <laughs> so you go to South Carolina, not even really knowing how to report. Now you're 20 years in. You you've got four Emmys. Congratulations on that, by the way. Thank now, you. As you and I both know, TV allows you to do some 
so many things that the average person honestly will never be able to do. So if you look back on your career right now, what's really probably been some of the most rewarding either stories you've covered, people you've interviewed, or just things you've got to participate in? I know there's usually some one or two things that stick out as like, I can't believe I got to do that. There's been some some pretty cool things. Um, I mean, for a while I was doing entertainment reporting, which was a lot of fun. So, um, you know, that was always sort of pinch yourself when you're on the red carpet and Bradley Cooper's walking towards you or Tom Cruise or Oprah or like name it. They walked up to me, you know, and like because I had a microphone and I was interviewing them and that was always kind of like, wow, this is cool. Or being able to go to the Academy Awards or um, interview at the, at the Grammys. Um, you know, just Aretha Franklin just passed this week and I went back in my archives and found a picture of when I interviewed her and I was nervous to interview her because she was like Aretha Franklin and I was at Stable Center and it was a one-on-one and I remember thinking, oh no, you just never know if they're going to be a prima donna or not. Yeah, and she yeah. came in, she was so sweet and just so gracious and just being, having that chance to be able to, to sit down with her and, and, and then and for them to be cool, you know, and then like Kendrick Lamar, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He's yeah. a big, um, rapper. He, I, intru- I was introduced to him before he became famous, like right when he was about to blow up, he was already on the radio, but no one knew who he was. And so I got to go to Compton where he's from. And I went back to his old studio and, you know, there were holes in the leather couch and, um, the studio was like super small little house behind another house behind another house. And, and I went in and interviewed him and he rapped for us like on the, his lyrics on the microphone. And looking back at that, it was just really cool. And what he's been able to do with his career. And I, I just, I pinch myself sometimes in that I'm able to do those kind of stories. Right. But then I go back to Texas when I was able to work with the uh, muscular dystrophy association. And, and I did stories prior to the telethon. And I would, I specifically got close to this uh, police officer who, had Lou Gehrig's disease and, um, you know, I followed him for several months and, you know, from when he could stand to when he ended up in a wheelchair to when he ended up was having a really hard time breathing where I could barely even interview him the day of the, the telethon. And just to be able to share his story and his, his journey has always been really important to me. He ended up passing, but looking back, um, I kn- knew nothing about neuromuscular diseases and, Lou Gehrig and to be able to go into their home and to see what they struggled with. And he was, you know, this big, strong police officer and Lou Gehrig's disease is so horrible. It just, it whittles you down to nothing. And, but your mind is still intact. So I was still able to communicate and have great conversations with him, but he just was fading and I was able to share his story. And I thought that I, and that was a long time ago. And I think I still think of him. You know, and so he affected me and being able to tell stories correctly, you know, and to be able to share someone's story and and be gentle with the storytelling as opposed to just telling a story, you know. Isn't that great when you when you do those types of stories and it it truly like completely changes your life? And, you you know, you're thinking, Mm -hmm. I just went out to do a story today and I walked away thinking, oh, my gosh, this is going to change my life forever. Well, you know, one of the. I took a break from journalism for about a year um, out here in Los Angeles. I was dating someone and they um, wanted me to be able to travel with them and, um, and be able to do some stuff. And I was working a night shift. So I just kind of took a break for a year and I was lucky enough to be able to do that. But 
one of the last times, and I, and I never have gone back to necessarily reporting out in the field. I've been lucky enough to anchor, but one of the last times I remember thinking um, that same thing, how you're saying, is that I had gone out. I think a gentleman had been uh, golfing with a friend, and a golf ball hit him. His friend hit a golf ball, and it like went awry and hit him in the head and killed him, right? Mm-hmm. And so we knew that this guy had been killed at a golf course. And unfortunately, as a reporter, I mean, I can find you any, I can find anybody, right? You just yeah. figure it out, yep. um, especially with the internet and stuff. So I, by the time the end of the day was, I was, I'd gone to the golf course. Of course, I got kicked off the golf course. They didn't want us to be there. <laughs> yeah. I got kicked off the golf course, shot that, interviewed the police officer to get the, the facts. And then I found his house. Right. And what do you want to do? You want to find someone who knows him, right, to interview or to say something about him. And none of the neighbors were around. And we found his house and I walked up and and a lot of times, you know, sometimes reporters will go up with the cameras rolling. I've never been that reporter. I've always been the reporter who, you know, goes with the camera down and then you ask, would you like to talk? And if they say yes, then you put you put the camera up. Right. And yeah. You don't just go barking into someone's personal life. But I went and. I knocked on the door, and, and I always tell the stories. I knocked on the door, but not really hard, right? Like, I just kind of knocked on the door because I really didn't want her to answer. I really didn't want his wife to answer, or you know, because that's just so, it's so awkward, you know? But at the same time, it's my job. And I knocked, and then my photographer was like, can you knock a little louder, you know? And I was like, okay, so I knocked. And I was like, they're not home, right? And I walked away, and a few minutes later, I mean, a few seconds later, the door cracked, and it was her. And she was so gracious and so sweet and crying, and she didn't want to talk on camera, of course. And I had a great conversation with her. She told me all about it. So I was able to tell his story and her story without her going on camera. Mm-hmm. And I finished my live shot. The story was well done. Um, I felt like I was able to tell the personal side of it. And it was a Friday, and we were a long ways out of Charleston, out of LA, like 20 minutes out or something, 30 minutes out. And I was like, okay, done, yay good story's done like i'm done with my live shot day's over let's pack it up and go it's friday i'm ready to go out you know and then but then all of a sudden it hit me and i was like i just did my job and now that's her new life there's no walking away from it i i I will never forget that woman either just just the pain i saw in her eyes you know so journalism is interesting because we we get up close and personal but then at the same time i talk about death and destruction every day and i have to close my heart off because if i get emotional about it i can't be up on the desk and be like i've got a story to tell you you know i have to (laughs) i have to close it off but occasionally those kind of stories get you like she and i've done even worse stories you know i've done you know lots of shootings and stabbings and all kinds of occasionally some something affects you and you realize I need to be a better journalist, even better. Like I need to take, be even more sensitive and even better, you know, and just kind of, and it just reminds you, you know, every, you never know what people are going through. And like, that was her new norm on that Friday night. You know, he wasn't coming home. Well, gosh, as you say that, it just, it brings back memories uh, very quickly, a, a quick story on my end. I became the, uh, we'll just call me the dead soldier guy for my news station. So yeah. this was back during the war. Yeah. And every time somebody from our area was killed in action, and it ended up being 13 of them, 
Um, my very first one, I actually just had a very good experience in which they did answer the door. The interview went great. The father actually called my news director and said, Tim did a great job. Thank you so much. And then it was a blessing and a curse at the same time, because then every time, you know, somebody was killed in action, they were like, Tim, time to go out. And I'm like, oh, and it was yeah, it's yeah. so hard, but so life changing. And I totally know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's brutal. Um, and I still sometimes I still sometimes wonder how people talk. You know, right after something, I guess people are in shock or they're. You well, know, that's what I would say. Already. I would say if I were you, I would slam the door in my face. So I totally understand if you want to do that, and that's what I would always yeah. say. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's all it's uh, people are people. You know, you just never know who wants to talk and who doesn't. But it's an interesting business, and um, you know, it's a medium that we're able to um, share a lot. Just even with sh- social media, you're able to share a lot of good stuff. But there's a lot of negative out there, so. And that's one of the reasons, like with Be Kind and Co., I'm really trying to push, especially just with the everything that's going on right now. I just feel like there's so much angst and negativity and bullying. And, and I, I, you know, we've forgotten to listen to one another and be kind and, like, help someone across the street or buy someone a coffee or just actually stop at work. And if someone says, how are you, stop and say, hey, I'm good. How are you? You know, and really mean it. Not like, I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just keep going. <laughs> Because maybe they want to talk to you about something or listen when someone, you know, someone, one thing that drives me crazy is like, and I think it's so kind to like stop and, and listen is when someone comes over to you or you go to someone's office and they just keep typing while they're talking to you or they're looking at the computer while they're talking to you. But <laughs> clearly someone's come to you to ask you a question or they need your advice or something. They're not just coming over there to bug you, you know, and it, all it takes is to take a deep breath, stop typing, look away from the computer and look them in the eyes and say, how can I help you? What, what, what do you need? You know, and let that happen. Even if it takes, if it's a three minute thing or if it's, or if it's going on too long to say, Hey, I really appreciate it. I've got to get back to my work. But instead of like just staying on the phone or talking on the phone or, you know, typing, it drives me crazy. So I, that's one thing I'm trying to do is to focus a little bit more, you know, listen a little bit more. Well, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about Be Kind & Co. You know, outside of your TV uh, career, you are an entrepreneur. Be Kind & Co. is predicated, as you've mentioned, on the, you know, the thought of being kind to others. You, you mentioned, I think, a little bit earlier in the podcast that you just kind of felt this urge, this universal urge to start something like mm-hmm. this. Where, where did it come from? It's interesting because I, I, I keep trying to figure out, looking back, you know, I, I think as a little kid, I was sort of like that kid who was like, <clears throat> saving all the animals in the neighborhood. You know, I had like a little cemetery <laughs> in the backyard. <laughs> so I, I, I mean, I, I was like a little kind kid and I think I'm still just like, feel like I'm a 12 year old. <clears throat> he just wants to hang out and, you know, have fun with, you know, kids and the animals and stuff. But I think it evolved uh, over the years. And I think I, I've always felt the need, like I was telling you earlier in the interview to help or to, to be kind to people. And, and something did, um, happened to me like, you know, a, a little under two years ago where I was being helpful and trying to be kind and I kind of something, it just was a perfect storm and some bad things happened and I wanted to give up on kindness and I wanted to like, I looked at myself as being naive and I was like, you know, you need to stop trying to help people. Like why, what's your, what's your problem with always wanting to help people, you know? And so I, but my friends all said, you know, if you stop being kind then we're going to stop being kind, you're going to be crazy people like us and mean, and you're the one who's always the nice, you know, who's being nice out there. So it made me reassess kindness and realize that I've got to try stay true to myself and, no matter what happens, if you get burned from it or if, 
you know, someone thinks you're weak um, because of kindness, then you just have to stay steady with it because kindness wins in the end. It really does. Like, even if someone thinks you're weak or they or thinks that you're naive because you're kind that's fine but ultimately i think kindness does win like people if you had to pick a mean team or a kindness team eventually people are going to go over to the kind section right Mm -hmm. and so after all that happened i was going to write a book and you know then i was going to maybe try to do some kind of kindness urge on on social media to get people to do something but then i just gave up on it again and i was like you know what maybe i just let go of this kindness thing and stop why do i have to share kindness like what what is it so i just like let's just walk away from it but I promised him like everywhere I looked it was like a sign that said be kind or like I was reading an article (laughs) and that someone was talking about nothing about kindness and then the article would end about kindness or something and so one day I woke up it was the it was my epiphany my aha moment I always loved Huffington Post but um, Ariana Huffington also started something called Thrive Global Uh, it's a site that's pretty positive and you know has um, articles on really positive things. And I was like, that's what I want it to look like. I want to have contributing writers. I want people to write about on all types of kindness. It's not about just going out and be, doing acts of kindness. It's about how we can be kind in every aspect of our life. If it's recycling or if it's, um, you know, being kind to your neighbor or if it's being kind to a guy, a guy just wrote a contributing, um, article that's going to post in the next day or so about dating apps and how, He's a young millennial, and he's writing about how dating apps have, like, basically stopped our ability to actually have a conversation with someone because, you know, you're talking to them on an app or choosing them on an app. Then you're not talking on the phone. You're texting, and then you might show up or you might not. But he was like, and ultimately he ended the article by saying, and remember, be kind to yourself. You are enough. No matter what your profile says, no matter what if someone swipes left or right, you are enough. Remember, be kind to yourself. And I thought it was so well written and so insightful from, you know, a, a young male millennial who's just out there trying to find his way, you know. But we're also doing travel. Um, I'm really interested in travel and finding places where people can go that are that locations. You, you have a choice of where you stay, you know, if a place is being cool to the earth or if a place is um, helping the homeless or or whatever it is, I, I really feel like it's still evolving. I just started it three months ago. So it's a it's a community that I'm trying to build right now on Be Kind & Co. And then from that point, I'm wanting to have women's conferences where we have people come and speak um, about situations in terms of kindness, but not just like, oh, be nice to people in the community. It's more <laughs> about how can we how can we really change the thought on kindness, like being kind to ourselves, what does that look like? I mean, when was the last time you were kind to yourself or looked in the mirror and said, I love you, you're awesome, you know, great arms or, you know, what, whatever it is as opposed to, oh, my God, your hair looks horrible, you've got bags under your eyes, you know, like when you've got to stop eating those chips, you know, it's like why, how we can be kind to ourselves. And it's not just women, it's men too, it's all of us, you know. Well, and it's, um, such a, so, it's, it's a great topic. And you mentioned the part earlier about being naive, you know, and thinking, well, gosh, maybe people are going to take advantage of me if I'm being too kind. Take it from a guy's standpoint. I remember back in high school, you know, it was always the, you know, remember the nice guy finishes last, you know, the yeah. the, the cocky athlete or the most popular guy in school. Those were the ones that, uh, you know, quote unquote, always got the girl. And now, you know, yeah. 20, 20 years removed from high school, I can honestly tell you the nice guys are the ones who have great marriages, who have great families, who are doing being successful. So 
for those of you listening who think nice guys finish last, I, I can assure you that's wrong. And I'm, I'm that sure that is one hundred percent. Isn't that great? Yes, that's such a great example, Tim. Because and and one of my one of my sayings is kindness is a strength. It really is. I mean, it's not a weakness. I say that in my opening video, and people have to remember that it, it is a strength, um, and people are drawn to that, and um, and it really does win in the end. Uh, whatever that looks like. Now, you love to give back as well as in addition to your Be Kind and Co. So you've got something called the Lou Parker Project. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, I mean, I I would live in a dog pack if I could. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, love, I, am, I am definitely a dog, but I also, you know, I just love animals and creatures in general. And, and my whole thing is I've just always wanted to give voice to the voiceless. And I've been doing it um, in some capacity all my life, but back in 2009, I started a project called Lou Parker Project, and primarily uh, for years, we worked directly with the shelters in, um, in Los Angeles, and, and we renovated one of the shelters that was really drab and um, dark colors and burgundy and tan, and we were able to go in with volunteers and, and young um, teenagers who are artists who wanted to be able to share their art, and we gave them a platform for that, and photographers. And, and for a long time, I was in the cages, you know, cleaning poo and washing out, washing the dogs and organizing and taking pictures. And we were one of the first organizations that started doing, like, the pictures where we could share on um, social media back in the day because the pictures from the shelters are always look like, you know, the, the dogs are, like, terrified because they had just gotten there and then they get a picture and... It's like a dating app. You know, you're not going to put your you're going to put your best picture on the dating app, right? You're not going <laughs> to put your worst picture because at least you want to get a date out of it, you know. Yeah. So um, over the years, it sort of moved into um, and we were doing a bunch of you know walks and to raise money and and do different things. And but down the road, now I've sort of moved into um, helping people. You know, if someone comes and says, hey, I love my dog. He got run over. He's going to have to get his leg amputated, but I can't afford it, so I'm going to have to put him down, you know. So we step in and are able to say, hey, we'll help you with the amputation, and, you know, and so they can keep their dog or, or whatever the situation is. Um, so that's there. And then, you know, Lou Parker Project is, is part of my overall Lou life. I'm not doing as much with it. It's still there, but I'm not as active with it because what I've done is I've transferred some of that energy over to a pet area at Behind and Co. and to KTLA. Mm -hmm. So at KTLA, what I've got now is we've, we have the general manager of the um, LA Animal Services uh, come on every Thursday with a, a dog that needs to be adopted every Thursday at one o'clock and we introduce the doggy and then we have a tip on animals just in general, like protecting them from coyotes or, you know, living in the heat or um, rabies or whatever the situation is. So what I feel like is that we're getting a message across. Not only are we getting four dogs, 100% adopted uh, a month, we're also getting people to the shelters because people go in droves to get the dogs they see on TV but if they don't get that dog, now all of a sudden they're at the shelter. So what does that mean? They're going to go in the shelter and they're going to go and get, maybe shop around, and then they're going to have a good experience. And they're going to tell their friends, oh, shelter dogs are actually really cool. Rescue pups are great. Um, and they learn that process of there's so many beautiful animals out there that need a home. There's no need to be purchasing animals, you know, or breeding them. And, you know, and I'm sure some people out there do um, that are listening, but I'm a true believer in their beautiful rescue animals out there that need a home, little tiny ones 
and big ones. My dog, Monkey, I've had for 11 years. I got him from South L.A., and he looked like he had just come off the streets, and he was <laughs> super, <laughs> super little rug rat, and he is the love of my life. I can't imagine that I'd had the last 11 years without him. Um, I'm going to clone him. <laughs> I, bet, I bet. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to clone him. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, so Liz Parker Project's been definitely one of the projects that I started in my life. But like I said, I'm, sometimes I think, why do I keep continuing to create projects or companies or different things? It's like, but, you know, you, you only have one life and you got to do what your passion um, leads you to and, and animals and, and making other people's lives just a little bit easier. Those are, I would say that's my passion. Those are my two passions. Well, I say you, you and my wife need to meet because you, she is a carbon copy of you. I mean, literally, my wife would fill our house with rescue animals if she could. Her dream is to own a farm <laughs> in which we can rescue animals from all walks of life. So I'm sure you yes, two, you we'll two definitely it. need to meet down the road because I'm oh, sure you probably awesome. start another company with her. Who knows? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, before we wrap up here, um, you know, as somebody who competed, won Miss USA, went on to, a, you know, a successful media career and is now, you know, doing great things in L.A. and, you know, doing all the stuff that we talked about. For those girls who right now are moving on or getting ready to move on from pageants, maybe some advice for them, not just from a career standpoint, but just from a life standpoint and maybe just mindset of where do you take this and where do you go with it? You can look at what you've learned. I mean, sometimes we go through life so quickly that we don't actually look back at the lessons that we learned from from life and from our experiences. And maybe as you move forward, if you're going into college or if you're moving into a different um, area of your life, you're getting a new, your first new job or, or whatever that looks like, um, maybe just take a few minutes to sit down and journal write of, of what your goals were and what you accomplished and maybe what you learned from the experience and maybe one or two maybe mistakes that you made from it and how you can not make those mistakes again, not in terms of competition, but just things that you could maybe have done better. And then look at the positives and just say, I'll, I'll take what this is and move to the next, to the next level. But deep down, it doesn't really matter about pageants or TV or, or anything what really matters from a woman's point of view, woman to woman, and what I've learned at my age now is that we have to love ourselves. We have to love ourselves unconditionally because if we don't love ourselves unconditionally, we can't love other people. And if we're not kind to ourselves, we can't be kind to other people. And so if you can just stop for a second and realize there's nothing that can define perfection. I mean, perfection doesn't exist. So let go of trying to be perfect and just live each day from a good place and be a good person and set goals and everything in life is going to be okay. Some great advice there. And by the way, for those of you listening, if you want to learn more about Lou or maybe even reach out to her, just go to her website, louparker.com. That's L-U parker.com. Lou, thanks so much for sharing your story. And by the way, I know RPM would love to have you back in South Carolina if it's not during sweeps period. <laughs> That's one of these years. Yes, so we, exactly. we'd certainly love, love to have you back. back. That would be great. And Tim, also too, I'm totally into Instagram right now. And if, if anybody wants to join me on Instagram, it's uh, Lou Parker LA. Oh, I love perfect. it. I'm like obsessed with um, Instagram right now. <laughs> I think I think everybody is. I, th I think you're right, in, right, right? In, the, in the group there. It's so much fun. Well, it was a pleasure to talk to you and um, life is good. Happy rest of the year. And um, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, Lou. Thanks so much. Have a great day.
That is today's episode. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And do me a favor, subscribe to the podcast. You can do so on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, the podcast app, Google Play, or you can just go to lifeafterthecrown.com. And by the way, if you're still involved in the pageant world and you're wondering what Life After the Crown will look like for you and how to prepare for it, download my free Life After the Crown starter guide. It's a quick read. It's about 35 pages. It will give you a great blueprint on how to start planning now and not when it's all over. To get it, just go to timtialdo.com slash starter guide. And for weekly podcast updates, just follow me on Instagram at Tim Tialdo. Until next time, remember the words of 1 Corinthians 10.13. No test or temptation that comes your way is beyond the course of what others have had to face. All you need to remember is that God will never let you down. He'll never let you be pushed past your limit. He'll always be there to help you come through it. Have a great week, everybody.